The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. Welcome to the Form Book Club with Vivian Deirdre, Father Fessio, Joseph Pierce. We're discussing the drama of atheist humanism by Henri de Bach. And we left off on page 364. And I have something I want to quote at the bottom, but Joseph advances me, uh, trumps me. Go ahead, Joseph. So, yes, I, 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 obviously on page 364, we have uh, some things here which sort of play into nationalism uh, in, in both a good and bad sense. So we have Shartov immediately protests. This is the second paragraph or the first full paragraph on that page, third of the way down. So I've reduced God to no more than an attribute of the people. On the contrary, I raise the people to the level of God. The people are the body of God. End quote. But this explanation strengthens rather than modifies the theory. Quote, a nation remains a nation only so long as it has its particular God and fiercely disapproves of all the other gods there are, so long as it believes that with its God it will be able to conquer, subjugate, and drive out all the other gods. And then skip a few more lines to the end of that paragraph. A great nation is one that believes that it is the sole repository of the truth that it is the only one called and the only one capable of resuscitating and saving the world by its particular truth. As soon as it ceases to believe that, it is done for. So I just want to comment upon that, because this is obviously something which we see is true of the notion of Holy Mother Russia, but um, it was also true of uh, the uh, Pax Britannica, right, the uh, the British Empire, that the British were the civilised people, and wherever the... Uh, the Union Jack was raised and civilization was arriving. Um, uh, prior to that, you can see the Pax, Rom- the Pax Romana. Um, and there's um, Adolf Hitler <laughs> with the Third Reich and the Thousand Year Reich. Um, and uh, you know, even a certain type of, uh, should we say, um, uh, neoconservatism. In Graham Greene's novel, um, The Quiet American, there's a character in that who's a member of the CIA and is absolutely convinced in the messianic sense that exporting the American dream to Vietnam or French Indochina, as it is when the novel's being set, uh, is, is the answer to the world's problems. And, of course, we can know there, there are problems attached to that as well. So I think there's something that's very um, apt and appropriate to Russia, which is obviously our topic of conversation if we're talking about Dostoevsky. But I think it's applicable to my own country, uh, by which I mean uh, the UK, and also to America, as well as other countries. Well, in what you read at the end, you know, a great nation is one that believes it is the sole repository of the truth, that is the only one called, the only one capable of resuscitating and saving the world by its particular truth. And I thought, well, that sounds so so ridiculous, doesn't it, when you read it? And yet, as you just said, uh, the Pax Romana, the Pax Britannica, the Third Reich, and Pax Americana, there's certainly... It may not be as bald and as bold and as and as crude as that, but there's this idea that we want to export democracy for a rules-based international order. And 
we, teen, when I say we, the narrative, Americans, many people, people, they think that that's, that's true, that we have an obligation out of charity, maybe, to uh, bring democracy to the world because we think it's the final stage and the best stage. Well, going back to, um, I think what, I think the question that the Lubach is answering is when the Mother Russia view comes out of the mouths of the different characters in his novels, and this one here, this Shatov, he's in The Possessed, but it comes out in other novels by Dostoevsky. And the question de Lubach is raising is, how much of this is Dostoevsky? And he does, you know, go into some uh, length about how all of his characters are a little bit Dostoevsky and a little, you know, so to discern how much of this is, is Dostoevsky. So um, I consulted my family Russian expert to find out about... Which is her son, who's a Marine, who speaks Russian and has studied Russian history. Yeah. And... Uh, I've been there. And uh, is, is following the Russian situation. And so he, he gave me some interesting insights. He says that this idea that Russia was almost called by God to save Christianity goes all the way back to the fall of Constantinople in 1453 to the Turks, because after, since the schism between East and West had already occurred in the 11th century, uh, what Russia witnessed of the Western church was not really that flattering. Uh, for example, the Avignon Papacy, where the popes were in France from 1309 to 1377, completely under the control of the French monarch. Then even after that, we had the three popes at one time all contending uh, for the papacy, and that didn't end until 1417. And so from the Russian point of view, Western Christianity was actually already over. They, they saw European Western Christianity as utterly debauched, under the control of temporal powers, and that the church was actually using temporal power to continue to extend its influence. Now, my son said that from a Russian point of view, this actually even became an existential issue because of all the wars at the borders between Russia and the West. We talked earlier about the Lithuanian-Polish Commonwealth. Uh, prior to that, there were the Teutonic Knights. So, so this war at the, um, what for Russia would be the Western border and for Western Europe, the Eastern border, this warfare going back and forth and back and forth over centuries uh, made Russia feel that this decayed Western European Catholicism was not only a national threat, it was an existential threat. And so this mentality has continued all the way to the present day. And my son says, and from a Russian's point of view, it's perfectly understandable <laughs> that they feel the way they do, but you have to understand that they're absolutely antagonistic to any Roman Catholicism at all, because in their minds, Rome fell a long time ago. And in fact, Ivan the, um, I took notes for my son, Ivan the third, when Constantinople fell in 1453, the czar Ivan III said, now it's up to Moscow to become the third Rome. So the first Rome, Rome. being Rome, the second Rome, Constantinople, 
Moscow now was to become the third Rome and the preserver of Christianity for the world. Now, by the time we get to Dostoevsky, um, how much of this was part of his psyche? How much of this? Um, a lot, actually. And um, de Lubach mentions uh, on page, um, the top of page um, 369, he mentions just very briefly, the very top line, famous address in commemoration of Pushkin. Okay, the famous Russian poet. Uh, this speech, I actually looked it up and I read about it in this biography of Dostoevsky I read years ago. Um, this is where, from the Russian point of view, Dostoevsky became literally a prophet because he was uh, lionizing Pushkin, the poet, but also calling from Russia its saving mission to save Christianity. And he was so passionate about it that the crowd was completely uh, in a swoon over it, over the speech. This was just um, less than a year before Dostoevsky died. And it was while he was writing the Brothers Karamazov. I didn't realize this. The Brothers Karamazov were published serially in a literary periodical that Dostoevsky edited, not unlike Dickens, right? No wonder these are so long, these yeah. Russian novels and these Dickens novels. In any case, this was so dear to Dostoevsky's heart. Now, uh, and he was utterly convinced that Roman Catholicism was irredeemable, you know, unfixable. But What's different between Dostoevsky and perhaps other Russian leaders, whether cultural or political, is that Dostoevsky was so adamant that this could not be brought about by force. Although he had no problem with fighting the Turks by force, I don't think he envisioned warfare between Christians as being a violent. He really thought that the Russian people were so pure, precisely because they were poor, he had this kind of romanticization, you know, of the faithful poor and that. Tolstoy too, yeah. And, and so, and Tolstoy actually became a peasant himself. I mean, tried to be. Uh, so there was this in the, in the Russian psyche, and it is part of Dostoevsky. I think what's so interesting now, what de Lubach does with this, is on page 368 in the middle, de Lubach says, there is doubt that Shatov incarnates a tendency that was very strong in Dostoevsky. He believed in Russia as a people-bearing God, meaning Dostoevsky, and almost as God himself. He did not doubt that Russian thought had the mission of regenerating the world. His messianic orthodoxy, tending to merge with the pan-Slav idea, became more and more fervent during his later years. And that is the reason why his voice took such a tone in the famous address, which I already described, in commemoration of Pushkin. But now what de Lubach does with this final set of quotes from Dostoevsky, I think de Lubach is saying, yes, but because Dostoevsky believes so much in freedom, there's a reality of human nature and human and the greatest gift that God gave to man, apart from his reason. So here de Lubach says, nevertheless, he, meaning Dostoevsky, was no dupe. In Shatov's position, there is something that is not clear, and Dostoevsky leads his hero to an embarrassed confession of it. The interview with Stravorgin ends in defeat. And then there's quotes here from the interview where we have Shatov not even sure he believes in God. You can actually have this, oh, yes, I believe in Russia. I believe in orthodoxy. But what God has to do with it, I'm not so sure. 
We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. Joseph, uh, you, you did a lot of work on Solzhenitsyn. To what extent would you see in Solzhenitsyn, you know, echoes of uh, or correspondences with this idea of uh, Russia as the Christian messianic country? Well, I think I, I think there's an element of that, and I think the, the, and I thank you very much, Vivian, for that very good explication. Um, uh, the the other aspect of Dostoevsky, and this is also true of Solzhenitsyn is that there's a struggle uh, with also the uh, the Enlightenment, which they also would have seen as a, a Western uh, problem, right? Um, so, so Solzhenitsyn uh, was, I think he's, he, would, he would be somewhat more moderate. And again, as, 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 as Vivian has pointed out here, particularly with this exchange here, uh, you know, if, if the nation becomes God, that, that, do you believe in God, right? Um, that I think that, that, that Solzhenitsyn's um, experience in the West broadened and softened him and mellowed him as i as i said a few weeks ago that he said i see russia as part of the west as part of christendom as part of western civilization and he said that if the iron curtain had come down and the cream of western civilization had steeped over the top i would have rejoiced and when i asked him directly about uh, 
Saint John Paul II's role in in bringing down communism via um, solidarity, trade union, etc. He was absolutely emphatic that he was played a crucial role in that. Um, uh, he did, but he did, however, raise the issue of the Catholic Church negotiated with the Bolsheviks immediately after the Russian Revolution to try to um, get an inroad into Russia now that the Orthodox Church is being suppressed by the Bolsheviks. And so, in other words, he's still very angry by what he saw as the Catholic Church's betrayal of the Russian people uh, following the Bolshevik Revolution. And when he met St. John Paul II, he actually raised that with him. So mm. that's, uh, so that's how, how strongly he felt about it. But I think that because he actually... It's what I feel coming over here. Before I came to America, I only saw America from the outside. And my view of the USA was based upon an outsider's view of it. And in some sense, you have to come here and see it from the inside to understand it better. And I still know what it looks like from the outside because I've had that perspective. And I think Solzhenitsyn had exactly the same thing, that in being exiled from the Soviet Union and spending so much time, first of all, in Switzerland, and then for most of the time in Vermont, in the United States, he came to understand the West. He took that understanding of the West back to Russia with him. And although he made a, made, he made a great Slavophile, you know, a love of his own people and culture, he, if you like, was a, was a mellowing, I would say moderating influence upon uh, Russian conservative thought because of his knowledge of the West. Well, and, and there's a mere image of this. Our knowledge of Russia is from the outside, too. Mm -hmm. And this book and the book precisely help us to get an understanding of what it looks like from inside Russia. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, Vivian, uh, these skirmishes on the borders of Russia between West and East, in that sense, were always existential. Mm -hmm. What's the Russian word for borderland? Ukraine. That's, that's, what, Ukraine, that's what Ukraine means, borderlands. Mm -hmm. That's the existential area for Russia. And that's why, to bring this to contemporary thing, why we may see no problem in extending NATO as far east as we can. For Russia, from inside Russia, that's aggression. And they've said it for decades. Now, my, my son, though, will point out that the situation of Ukraine, what makes it doubly complicated is that you have both yes. peoples, the Ukrainians who self-identify as Ukrainians, do not consider themselves Russians. The Russians, though, also live in Ukraine. And so the Russians who live there and their citizens. want to be part of Russia, and the Ukrainians that live there don't. And so part of this is a civil war between these two sets of peoples, and they are distinct peoples. My son has said that this idea that, no, somehow all these people are part of Mother Russia. Look, Ukraine became, Kiev became Christian in 899, before the schism between East and West. At that time, Moscow was a swamp. It was nothing. Those people were nothing. And so we have, to be, we have to be careful. There's been an awful lot of migration of peoples in what is now Russia. Yes, um, and, now uh, it's, the, the Russians would certainly say, when I was in I'm talking about 899, what Moscow was in 899. Yes, I'm not the Russian people. Weren't, weren't living in Moscow and weren't based in Moscow then. They were actually, they were they were they were further south. So so that so that the, 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 the say that the Russians all these tribal people lived in swamps and then somehow or other you know caught up. 
No, there's been a lot of migration of, of, of the Russian, what are the Russian people around in what is in Russia, and that, including Ukraine. Yes. And, you know, again, that civil war, it, it is a civil war, and I'm not arguing with that. Yes. But it's not a, it's not a very complicated civil war, you know, um, because the majority of the people in the eastern part of Ukraine are Russian. Um, the majority of people in the western part of Ukraine are Ukrainians. I mean, obviously, there's a, it's a bit more mixed up than that. There's Hungarians there and Romanians yes. there as well. But yes. um, uh, so, so the point is that there's, there's two separate areas, the coolest of Ukraine, that are like this with each other. That's yes. the problem. That's right. And, and your point about the migration of peoples is very well taken. And it's not just ethnic Russians involved. There are, I don't remember the number, but the number of ethnicities of people living in these lands is huge and language groups and all the rest. And so my son, when, when people ask him point blank, so is, you know, is Putin uh, a Russian nationalist? And he'll say, well, that depends. Or is he an imperialist? Well, that depends if, and this is, this is a tricky thing for Putin politically as well. If, if he can manage to keep all these disparate peoples <laughs> together, uh, all equal under law and so forth, without favoring one minority and this kind of thing, that's one thing and remains to be seen is that what's being undertaken or not. If, though, what were to emerge would be an ethnic, ethnocentric sort of Russian imperialism or nationalism, that would bode not only un that that would bode ill not only for people who call themselves Ukrainians but all these other ethnic groups who are spread throughout these yeah. lands. So can I can I say to that just just, just to speak to that? It's yes. another wonderful thing that Dos, uh, that Solzhenitsyn said. So Solzhenitsyn was facing aggressive questioning from some liberal Western journalist. Uh, and he, he's accused of being a Slavophile, and he said, "Why? Well, I, I, I do love my country. I love Russia." And then, because of the fact that Russia is a multi-ethnic society, this journalist said, "Well, who exactly is Russian?" Yeah. Right. And Solzhenitsyn responded, "Anybody who feels Russian." Oh. <laughs> In other words, it's not about race. It's not about ethnicity. It's about do you actually adhere to the common understanding of what it is to be a Russian? If you do, irrespective of what your ethnicity is, you are Russian. Well, and I, I mean, this is probably different now. When I was in Russia in the late 90s, I was in Novosibirsk and south of Novosibirsk, in this area which was populated by Germans under Catherine the Great, who... Was Austrian. It was Austrian, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, these people showed me their passports. It said Nemitz on it, German. This is this is not Moscow, St. Petersburg. This is this is Siberia. I mean, this is Novosibirsk, and they still consider themselves as German even two centuries after this took place. Yeah. My second experience, a different trip, but I was in Kiev, and in, I think I might have mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. They've got the, this underground monastery there, where the monks lived underground for their whole lives and never left their cells, and their cells were like these little caves. It was kind of a common corridor. And it came with bars, and they lived there the whole time. Wow. And I mean, talk about asceticism. Anyway, there was this Ukrainian guide who was taking us through there, and somehow the discussion went about the Moscow Patriarchate and the Ukrainian Autocephalic Church, you know, the, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And she said the same thing. One of you said, Oh, you said, uh, 
we were Christian when Moscow was a swamp. You yeah, know? She's, she's, that's those, what they say. Those very words. That's what they say. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, but Moscow became with with, with the incursion of the Turks, uh, and uh, and then this 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 borderland dispute going on. That's how Moscow gained in importance because the Romanovs, uh, the dynasty. I think uh, this Ivan the Third was one of the first Romanovs. Anyway. You know, they they managed to uh, fight off these other threats. And that's how Moscow became so important, because it was from there they're fighting off threats on all sides. And uh, this, you know, the people who, uh, uh, what do you want to call it, don't take seriously the claim that for Russia this is existential. My son will say, you just don't know Russian history then, because for them it has always been existential. They've been fighting all these different Aggressive during World War Two, when the Nazis basically broke the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and instead of being allies to the Soviet Union, then attacked the Soviet Union, uh, that Stalin dropped immediately all pretense of Marxist propaganda and started speaking about Holy Mother Russia because he knew that's exactly what would get the people behind the Red Army, behind the Soviet Army, to fight the Germans. It was actually, he had to become a Christian, you know, symbolically, uh, in in order to actually get the Russians to fight the Nazis. And that was in a previous uh, session, I mentioned that film, Alexander Nevsky, I think it's Nevsky, who fought the Teutonic Knights that film was made under Stalin's regime to gear up the Russian people for a German advance and to be prepared to fight to the death against it. And so, th- yeah, this has a long, long history. I mean, the Russians are not going to die for Karl Marx, right? No. <laughs> no. And a session before that, of course, Napoleon. Napoleon. Goes in the, and a session before that was Sweden that actually invaded Russia Swedes, through Ukraine. Prussians. You know, th- this has been an ongoing, an ongoing thing. So, uh, so you know, it's comp, it, it's 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 simple and complicated at the same time, I guess. So I think this is very helpful, though, because I think that you know, in, in, when they're in time of warfare, which obviously in that part of the world we are now, we're all it's all very too simple to just to go into a knee-jerk binary position, so to speak, right? Where it's black and white. And one side's demonic and the other side's heroic. And we don't have to think about, you know, the, the, any nuance or what motivates the one side. No, they're just demons, right? One side's orcs and the other side are hobbits. So very, very easy then, but that's not the way it is. And so I think I, th- I think this has been very important. Good. So, um, so back to Dostoevsky, I just want to end this quote at the bottom of page 369. Uh, to, to sum up this messianic Russian thing, uh, Delubak here is saying Dostoevsky does not confuse nationalism, even of a mystical and spiritual type, with faith. I think yeah. that is the key point that Delubak is making in this section. Yeah, and uh, the danger is is summed up at the where we started with the the end of the previous section, where people make of nation, uh, nationhood, and nationality an idol. Yes. Now, once once the nation becomes an idol, it becomes a god. If it becomes a god, it's immediately uh, ipso facto a rival to God Himself, and and it's, you know, it, 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 that's just that's well, the danger. I, I want to start this yeah, session with a quote yeah. from page two sixty four. But this has been a very interesting uh, excursus. How much do we have time for? Yeah, yeah, you have. Okay. Got about, uh, 
five minutes. All right. So now I want to re read this quote in light of what we just said, because uh, bottom of page 364, second paragraph from the end there, during the last 50 years, we've had more than one description of mystical imperialism. Is not Chateau of its forerunner? Today, there's much talk of realism. Did not Chateau begin observe that it's impossible to go against facts? Okay, what does that mean? A philosophy of history can be built up on that foundation. Here's historical, you know, doctors here. The Jews were a great nation because they all lived, all they lived for was to wait the coming of the true God and give him to the world. The Greeks deified nature and bequeathed to the world their religion, that is to say, their philosophy and their art. Rome defined the people in the form of the state. France was the incarnation of Roman Catholicism, and she is now propagating an atheist socialism that is its natural sequel. When he comes to Russia, Shatov ingeniously rediscovers the only God and the universalism of conquest that for him is the mark of great nations is found to coincide with the universalism of truth and of the absolute. Quote, this is Shatov. As there is only one truth, there cannot be more than one single nation that possesses a true God, however great and mighty the gods of the other nations may be. The only people bearing God is the Russian people. So that's Shatov. And now we know why Russians can feel that way. And they're continuing. Thus, after Kirillov, after Prince Mishkin, and after Maria Timofeevna, Shatov too has his religion. But what sort of a deity is this, which at one moment seems to be no more than man, and another takes on the aspect of life, the earth, the nation. In what imminent power, capital P, can we recognize God? If that is what Dostoevsky offers us after having conquered atheism, are we to rejoice in his victory? He has plumbed the depths of our flesh and blood nature, and he has wonderfully exalted the sense of holiness. But is it not a decidedly ambiguous holiness? There's a yes. Yes, as, as Joseph just said, if you turn your nation into God, what kind of holiness will that be? What will you not be willing to do right. to your enemies once you've made the nation God? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on page 366, this has to do with the idea of these characters being kind of parts or fragments of Dostoevsky, a new paragraph there, uh, foregoing our truisms. But here the difficulty begins. What is the ego? I have in my, me my nature, my temperament, my character, meaning almost some of which I proscribe, some of which I ratify, and some of which I endure. There are the characteristics I've inherited and those I have made for myself. There are th These things are the things that I hide from myself and the things for which I yearn without possessing them, but which are a molding influence because they attract me. So he's pointing out here that, well, what do you mean fragments of death? We don't even know ourselves. I mean, there's all these... There's dark corners, there's bright corners, there's, there's ambiguities in there. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually quite a good, I don't know, it's not a definition of the ego, but I think it's a good description of the various facets of the ego, which I think is, is very useful. And, of course, it shows the necessity of the ego getting outside itself uh, so that it doesn't become self-obsessive. And I think of John Paul II saying, man is a mystery to himself. I want to... Quote from these two letters to Maikov. This is Dostoevsky, not fiction. This is his writing letters. This is on page 368, 368 in the footnotes, footnote 33. Uh, things are moving toward regeneration for the whole world. Through Russian thought, which, as you rightly mark, is firmly wedded to orthodoxy, and it would come within the next hundred years. So he, he's 
predicting that Russian thought is going to regenerate the world. 34. The horizon of Russia's future is widening. The principle has been established of a whole new world in which Christianity will find renewal at the hands of pan-Slav orthodoxy, and mankind will be presented with a new system of thought. This will come to pass when the West has gone rotten, and the West will go rotten when the Pope, having finally distorted Christ, has by that very fact stirred up atheism in the corrupt humanity of the West. That's it. Now he, you know, the Russians, for the most part, pretty much already believed yes. that the West was already hopelessly corrupt, that Roman Catholicism had proved its moral bankruptcy by getting into bed with monarchs and princes and, you know, uh, and that, that they were perfectly willing to use force to compel faith. This was their view of, of Roman Catholicism. Now, when you think of the Russian uh, despotic czars, you know, you're kind of wondering, how does Dostoevsky have such a hopeful view that, uh, that, 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 that a uh, resurgent Russia isn't going to be just as tyrannical with the use of authority as everybody else has proved to be? And in fact, what happens after his death is the, the Bolshevik takeover of Russia and the imposition, yeah, a new system of thought, uh, Russian messianism wedded with worldwide communist revolution. That is just such a strange turn of affairs, turn of events, compared yeah, to what I, he was I, expecting. I, would say I don't think it's Russian messianism. It's, it's Western corruption embraced by a certain intellectual class in Russia to embrace a, a, global, a globalist international revolution, uh, you know, which is not very far from, from the Russian ideal of things. But I think the bigger problem is that what he's saying there in those footnotes is really making of Russia the true religion. He's really actually doing what he says through his novels people should not do because yes. you're making a god of your nation. Um, yes. And think about the Catholic Church, for all of its weaknesses, it is universal. Right? It has got in bed with France at certain times, such as the, the Avignon Papacy, etc., and it's been disastrous when it's done it. But yep. generally speaking, the Catholic Church does not belong to any one nation. And that's one of the beauties of it, right, is that, that no, no one nation can put their thumb or their jackboot on the Catholic Church, at least not for long and not successfully. And that's one of the weaknesses. And that's one of the weaknesses of orthodoxy that after the Great Schism in 1054, the Orthodox churches were autocephalous churches. And so how could they not take on the national ethnic character of their locations yeah. because there no longer was a sign of unity that the papacy is supposed to be? And so when you think about the tremendous missionary impetus of the Roman Catholic Church throughout the world, into Asia and Latin America and and uh, and the genius, so much of the ge true enculturation, not the phony counterfeits form of it, but the true enculturation that somehow this faith could take root in every culture, in every people, and they don't have to become Europeans right. to become Christians, even though yeah. certain things about that culture came across, of course. But, you know, this was the beauty of, of Catholicism. Is. is amen, amen. I, I want to say one more thing about Dossier's prophet because, in many ways, he is prophetic. There's no question about that. But in this, this is in 1870s, 1869. He's writing these letters in 1868, and his prophecy there is because the Pope of the West is distorted Christ, 
atheism will corrupt society. Yes. And Russia will save it. What happened 50 years later? Russia became atheist. The West was saved from atheism, really by by Christian Europe and by the United States. Although now we have a decline into a, a different kind of atheism, a practical atheism taking place. But in any event, his prophecy for the next 100 years was exactly diametrically wrong from what, what actually happened. And yet, Always dangerous to pay the prophet, right, Father? And, and, yet the, and yet the thing he got at, the essence of the thing he got at was when Christians betray their faith to worship some idol, which is either the state or science or progress or even absolute freedom or whatever, you know, when Christians lose their sense that they are sons of God, surrendered to his will for the good of themselves and everyone, when they lose that and turn to something else, then, then the things that he predicts do in fact happen. The church does become corrupt. And then thank God, though, God raises up saints and raises up holiness in surprising places to renew the church, always has, and we pray, always will, right? And there you have it. I think he, the essence of what Dostoevsky put his finger on is still true, even though the way it worked itself out in human history is not exactly what he was expecting. Well, well as, as obviously we, 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 we've... Uh overstayed our welcome here so to speak okay. in terms of time I, i'm gonna i'm going to uh if i may end uh on a patriotic note as we're talking about nationalism here with uh well, an well, english I we've covered five pages i think that was very very <laughs> useful and we we'll, we'll join you uh, in the next session next week to continue perhaps even more than five pages so with you all. if you enjoyed this discussion Please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.